Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Tony Jordan. Tony's the author of the Miles Franklin longlisted novel Edition, and today we're going to be discussing her latest novel, The Fragments. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, where I speak with an Australian writer, and together we explore their books, writing, and their literary culture. The Great Conversations podcast is a way to expand on that discussion, and together we get behind the scenes of the book and explore the issues that inform it, and in turn, the way it informs our world. So thank you to everyone who has joined me in the the beginning months of this podcast sort of expedition. I've been doing the show for such a long time, and to have the podcast received uh, is just so wonderful. I really love sharing this love of Australian writing, and I hope you do too. So it's December, there's a holiday season coming up. Maybe give the free gift of a podcast to someone. Recommend the Great Conversations podcast to one of your friends who loves books and help them join me and, and all of us in sharing Australian writing. So in the fragments, we meet Caddy Walker. She's waiting in line in mid-80s Brisbane. Caddy's a bookseller who has given up on academia, though not on her love of literature. She's waiting to see an exhibition of Inga Carlson's work. The celebrated author's first novel, All Has an End, has inspired generations, and Caddy's anticipating the thrill of viewing the few remaining fragments of Carlson's second novel, The Days, The Minutes. Now, the book was thought lost in a fire until Caddy hears a few cryptic lines from a woman in the exhibition line, and that sets her off on a hunt to discover the novel's true fate. So join me today as Tony and I explore the mystery and the world of the fragments. I'm joined on the line by Tony Jordan. Now, regular listeners may remember Tony and I last spoke around the release of Our Tiny Useless Hearts. Her debut edition was longlisted for the Miles Franklin, and today we have her latest novel, a literary mystery, The Fragments. Welcome, Tony. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me. It's always a pleasure, Andrew. Now, The Fragments. We meet Caddy in mid-80s Brisbane. She's a bookseller who has given up on academia, though not on her love of literature. This sounds like people we can relate to here. Um, (laughs) Caddy waits in line to see an exhibition of Inga Carlson's work. The celebrated author's first novel, All Has an End, has inspired generations, and Caddy anticipates the thrill of viewing the few remaining fragments of Carlson's second novel, The Days, The Minutes. The book was lost in a fire until Caddy hears a few cryptic lines from a woman at the exhibition that sets her off on a hunt to discover the novel's fate. All right. So, I love this. It's a, it's a literary mystery. And the fragments... It's for book lovers. It's especially designed for book lovers, which I know you are, Andrew. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> too many questions about that. Uh, the fragments, we have this these twinned narratives of women who are somewhat lost. We have... Caddy in Brisbane. Um, she's drifted for years, unsure of what her life means. And then we have Rachel in 1938, Pennsylvania, and she must figure out how to grow up and escape her family situation. So I want to start with Caddy and Rachel and what you saw in them. Well, it's exactly as you said. They're two women, very different, separated by continents and by decades, um, but they both sort of come in contact with this amazing, elusive, um, dead writer, and they it changes both their lives. And I guess, you know, the power of books has always been immensely important in, in my life, and I suppose, uh, yeah, this is kind of my love letter to, to reading and writing and, and book lovers just like me. 
<laughs> now, the fragments, it connects us, the reader, with our desire to uncover. And this is, this is an instinct that compels us to become part of the narrative. I don't think many people are going to pick up the fragments and not be trying to figure it out. Um, and the 20th and the 21st century has this this legacy of literary discovery. And uh, I remember it's quite early on. You have Caddy discussing the importance of sort of uncovering manuscript or what, and what might happen to uncovered manuscripts and lost novels. And she muses on the possibility of a lost sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> so in, in 1986, this would have been a fascinating literary possibility, but I feel like us reading it in 2018, there is a much darker turn because we understand that such a revelation, really, it, it only complicated the original work's legacy. That's a long way of me asking, what is this fascination we have with literary mystery? Well, the, the first point, that sentence that I put in about the missing um, Harper Lee, I, I did it exactly for that, for that point, the point mm. that you've raised to make people think about that these things do occasionally happen and it can change a legacy and, and have an enormous um, swell of meaning to it, that, that missing second book. And actually it was the publication of um, Go Tell a Watchman, the, the second, you know, found, I'm using mm. little quote marks here, mm. <laughs> found Harper Lee that, that really got me thinking about this kind of story because two things happened at the same time. The Harper Lee manuscript was found and published, and someone made an awful lot of money from that, and I kind of suspect that it wasn't Harper Lee. Mm. Um, and then there was the unveiling of Elena Ferrante, if you remember. So oh, yep. she wrote those Neapolitan num um, novels under a pseudonym, and then some investigative journalist kind of did the work to reveal who she was, and a lot of people were saying that that was a terrible thing, which I guess it was, and uh, and why do we have this need to know who the writer is? Why do we have this, you know, desire to uncover? Like, I was as interested in the Ferrante mystery as anybody, and when it was revealed who she was, I, w I was also disappointed about the uncovering of this author. So both those things came together in my mind as inspiration for this story. As to your question about literary mysteries and why they're so intriguing. I just love them. I think about books like, you know, Possession is really the gold standard. By Possession by A.S. Byatt mm. is kind of the kind of literary mystery that, oh, my God, I love that book. Um, but also there's fun ones too, like Shadow of the Wind by um, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, is it? Mm. And, you know, even The Da Vinci Code on one level is kind of a literary mystery. People chasing you know, uh, secrets and and uncovering stuff. Um, so those kind of books have always had such a great fascination for me. I think everybody loves them. So I wasn't going to go there, but I'm going to go there now because you kind of went there first. Inga, <laughs> Inga Carlson, um, so much of of who she is is tied up into the mystery and hence the spoilers of the novel, but... Knowing a little bit about her really, really opens up the story for us. I'm not going to ask you to talk about her so much as your feelings about going into her personality. She is, she is a character and a, an almost a mythic figure for Caddy. Um, but in Rachel's life, there is very much this, this crossover. Were you, were you at all trepidatious about actually fleshing out her character? 
I did a lot of research. I'm not really a very research person. Mm. Research is like my most rubbish skill as a novelist. Um, but I did do a lot of thinking. I did read about four biographies of Harper Lee. Mm. Um, and I also read a number of biographies of, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong because I don't know how to pronounce things. Is it Ayn Rand? Is Ayn, that the name? Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand, yeah. Um, so for my sins, I read like three of those biographies about her uh, life in the 1930s as a extremely successful and charismatic, I think you can say, mm. um, novelist. And I also read a number of biographies because I was thinking about those artistic, creative women who develop almost a kind of a cult following. Mm. And I also read biographies of the Nazi filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl. Um, so I did kind of immerse myself in the lives of these 1930s, um, very charismatic, artistic-driven special women. It, Between the Wars was a kind of a special period because um, everybody was a little bit less uh, hung up. It was like um, the Great War, as they saw it, had already been, you know, it was a new era. There was a lot of stuff going on and a lot of fun and dancing and, you know, all that kind of thing before they knuckled down to the Second World War. Mm. Um, so it was a combination of, of this very special person and the very special time that she lived in. But, yeah, I did a lot of work on her, so... <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, research is really not my thing, but but I had to do a lot of work. Yeah, I I loved the I guess that in a microcosm the the juxtaposition yeah of the that the heights of sort of the Weimar before the tragedy of of what came to be the Second World War in Germany and and the greater Europe and then the world, but. Before we before we go to global, I wanted to think about how you also very specifically juxtapose Brisbane and New York, and throughout yeah. the novel, you, yeah, you kind of seem to muse and lament and perhaps dissect Brisbane of the nineteen eighties. Was there a significance for you in setting the novel in these fading years of Queensland's notorious Jobiocki Peterson era? Yeah, that was very pointed and very deliberate. I kind of wanted the whole the whole novel to have a sense of kind of nostalgia and longing for things that had passed away or things that had gone or eras that had sort of faded. And there's a lot in the book about wherever somebody is, they kind of want to be someone somewhere else. So, you know, when Rachel is on a farm, she, she kind of thinks about moving to a bigger place and Caddy thinks about what happens in a big city and then people in the city wish that they were in a smaller place and this kind of sense of, Something is happening, but it's not here. Um, and Brisbane in the 80s, I think, 86, which, which is when I sent the story, as you say, it's the fading years of the Bjelke-Peterson regime. It's just before Expo 88, which was a real turning point in Brisbane's, the way Brisbane saw itself as a city. Um, and, the, you know, the new art gallery was just had just been built. There was a really a, a just beginning to have a resurgence in Brisbane's artistic and creative life. So I wanted to capture that feeling before it became kind of this more sophisticated place that we see it today. Mm. And in this space, we have Caddy. And as I've mentioned, she she's a bookseller, but she has very much um, this, this remembrance of her time, her almost time in academia. And I noticed both Caddy and Rachel, they're constantly checking themselves and reminding themselves 
of their own visibility or perhaps their own existence. And I couldn't help but notice this is also because they're they're made to feel insignificant by men who don't disregard them so much as rather need them to boost their own sense of self. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that's that's also very true. Um, it's something that I see, thankfully, less of today. But I guess now that I'm kind of an older an older woman, I have this tremendous sense of anger on on behalf of young women everywhere. Um, you know, I I took up um, you know boxing training a couple of years ago, and when I showed up at the boxing gym. No, I apologised to to the trainer that I'd never boxed before and hadn't ever really exercised before, and and the lovely boxing trainer said to me, "Lady, if um, postmenopausal women ever stopped being angry, I'd be out of business." <laughs> so I think there's kind of a groundswell of that. I want to I want to show young women that that there's that they're fulfilling a role in somebody else's life story rather than their own life story. And and certainly I was like that when I was a young woman. And, yeah, it's something that um, that I think is, a, is an important part of the story. How can you make yourself visible to yourself firstly and then, and then other people will see you as well? Can we then go to connections with, with power and where power comes from? Um, in both Caddy and Rachel, we have these complicated portraits of love, of survival. They both have this, this urge and this need to protect. Um, they both also have this, this love of Inga Carlson's work and the belief in its power. So uh, at one point there is a, a conversation, I'm not going to reveal where, um, <laughs> about the power of literature to affect good. And this is a thing that, that seems hard to believe, but then that's contrast with this idea that evil can quite easily be stirred by words. Do you... Do you think it's it's good or healthy that Caddy and Rachel have this need to believe in the power of of Inga's work, or does it are they somehow almost outsourcing? Do they need to find something within themselves? It's a it's interesting because of the time in which I wrote this book. I mean, we only have to look at the news to see that we're all a bit demoralised with um, the battles that are in front of us. It seems like constant battles are in front of us. So whether whether I'm trying to say that that there is an answer in the way we communicate in words um, or whether it's going to... We're just telling ourselves that. I don't really mind to tell you the truth. I feel like anything that we can do to make us feel a little bit more willing to go into battle is a good thing. So I'm happy if it's a, if it's a nice illusion that gets us all thinking and talking or, or actually it's a fact. I, I kind of... I mean, books are magical. They really are. You can... It, this is like ink, like black ink on just white paper, and you can convey thoughts and emotions across centuries and across oceans. You can you can pick up something and read exactly what, you know, Jane Austen was feeling in 1802. You can communicate ideas from people that you've never met. It truly is a wonderful thing. And it, the other thing about it... I teach writing a lot as well. It's, in my view, our most democratic art form. You can go to a library and borrow any book that you like pretty much for nothing. You can, with a very simple implement, a pen and paper, you can start to make your own story. And I just can't think of another art form that is so democratic, so easy to begin and and so welcoming to people when they try and... I think it was Orwell who kind of talked about 
when you're when you can write clearly, your thoughts are clear, and it's a sort of a feedback loop. Mm. Writing clearly clearly makes your thoughts become clearer. So I, I I am evangelical about the power of reading and writing to communicate things. Of course, an unacknowledged reality of behind the question that I just asked is that both Caddy and Rachel are living in times where their life is constantly fighting and constantly struggling. They are not going to be put in a position where things are just going to happen for them. And through Inga, they they actually see someone who has gone not just the extra step, but ha- has achieved. And in, as we learn a little bit about Inga's life, we learn that her her daily her daily struggle is still exactly that a daily struggle and she doesn't just receive things um i want to come i want to come a little bit to to some of the politics um but one thing that we we learn is that she despite her genius despite the hotly anticipated second novel that is reduced to fragments at the beginning of the book um she still can't quite get everything she wants such as the typesetter that um she just doesn't want him touching it because he is a member of the american bund which were uh which were, I guess, the the Nazis in America. Um, yes. Even as a as a woman, even as a successful woman, she couldn't quite get what she wanted. Yeah, that's right. And um, look again. I suppose that's the question: is whether you compromise on these small things, or whether you, you know, you keep fighting for these small things. But but power, I think, comes into all my work. And I think this is probably the first novel that I've written where. It's about the external power rather than the internal power. Mm. I think my other four books have been really about control over oneself and and how you work out your own existence, how you control your own thinking about yourself and about your life. Mm. And I think this is the first thing that I've done where I think about the what the external place is where power comes from. And it's been a really fascinating lot of thinking for me and I don't know if I could have done it in any other you know years since the since the Trump election I don't know mm. if this story would have worked in any other period of, in time and that's why I chose the 30s with the the kind of rise of fascism and and forces stirring that that are either outside or inside our control yeah let's go there then because the specter of fascism is I guess from the point of view of history, it's it's quite easy to see in that late 30s period. Uh, Inga, is, she's a European migrant, and she finds the growing tide in Europe terrifying. She says people seem to think it's all flag-waving and nicely pressed uniforms, but she knows it's more than that. Now, Queensland, uh, in the late... Well, Queensland throughout the 70s and 80s, it had its own reputation for heavy-handed policing. Now we live in a world where growing nationalism and conservatism is fueling hate and division, and yet people are still, I don't know, using throwaways like learn to take a joke and it's free <laughs> speech. And Yes, so- we are. I just can't, I'm quite terrified and I just can't, you know, you look around and, and I, I kind of think to myself, why isn't everyone else ter- terrified? Um, uh, it's, it's quite baffling to me. I, I just wonder how this period in time will look in re- retrospect. I'm wondering if it will look in like the late 30s in retrospect. Of course, you hope not. But you kind of think, geez, if you draw a trajectory, a straight line, where this is going, I wonder where we'll end up. So, I mean, yeah, it's a pivotal time in history right now, I think. So let's let's say a few words that we can look back in, in 2050 and... <laughs> 
and question <laughs> ourselves because we've acknowledged the power of literature. We've, yeah. we've acknowledged that it does have this pull on people. Where does the power of literature then sit for this situation? What are, what are people doing with their books? What are you doing with your books? What should people be looking for in their reading if, they, if they're feeling this fear? Um, gee, that's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, I'm enormously, as you know, obsessed with novels. So to me, it's about um, fiction. There's a lot of people who are writing what they call cli-fi now, really fascinating um, climate fiction. So there are ways to enter into thinking about what is going to happen to the world environmentally and of course those repercussions flow into social and um and and other kind of thoughts but i think historical fiction has an important role to play here because you can't you can't recognize these patterns unless you can look back and say actually this is similar to another period in history you know you have to be able to understand enough about what has happened in the past to be able to make those comparisons. So I think almost all fiction has an important part to play, not to mention the general excellent job that fiction does in helping develop empathy, uh, which is so fantastic. I mean, it's reading fiction that makes you imagine the world from someone else's perspective and forces that as an exercise upon you. Um, And to me, that is incredibly useful to broadening your view of the world and what is in the world. I'm going to go a step further, Tony, because these books exist out there. Wonderful books like Tony Jordan's The Fragments <laughs> exist. <laughs> they, they exist in the world and it's not enough to read them and pat ourselves on the back for reading them and understanding their importance. We then have to share them. So this is what I'm doing today. This is, this is, it's coming up to the end of the year and it's going to be one of my last shows for the year. So I'm, I want to share with everyone Tony Jordan's The Fragments because it, all of the ideas we have discussed and more are, are there for you to discover and be entertained by, but also think about the world. Um, and I am joined by Tony Jordan. We are discussing her latest novel. Tony, thank you so much. These are always such great chats when we get together. Thank you so much, Andrew. That's it for this great conversation with Tony Jordan. Tony's new novel, The Fragments, is out now through text publishing. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you're enjoying Great Conversations from Final Draft, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll get a new episode every week. And please share the podcast with your friends and look, give us a rating. It's a great way for people to help people discover the podcast anew. Now, if you want to keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, or maybe even just see what sort of bookish stuff I'm tweeting and, and sharing, go to Instagram, Facebook, even uh, even Twitter. Look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel. I am back with, uh, yeah, I've got a couple more episodes left in the year. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Bye now.